when I was 13, I had what was probably my biggest surgery um, that I've had in my life um, because I was diagnosed with um, an Arnold Chiari malformation, um, which is a longer story. But um, after I was, um, I, it was a pretty fast turnaround between my diagnosis and having surgery. Um, we went and met with a neurosurgeon on a Friday, and the following Monday I had surgery. And um, I was 13 years old, so what I remember going in was that I, I had no idea what to expect at that time. Um, and that's probably good. In, in retrospect, but um, I remember I brought my teddy bear with me into surgery. Um, even though 13 is probably a little old for a teddy bear, I kept that teddy bear through college. Um, so that was sort of my comfort thing. And um, and at the hospital, they were it was a children's hospital, so they were really good about that. They gave my teddy bear a mask too, and um, and I opted for. They gave me a choice between having my anesthesia started through a mask and having them start the IV and starting the anesthesia that way. And I thought, well, I'd rather not be awake when they poke me with a needle, so I will choose to use the anesthesia through the mask. And um, and that was a mistake, actually, because <laughs> it ended up being having more side effects. So. Yeah. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside the healthcare system. In this podcast, we interview patients, health caregivers, clinicians, and others who have navigated through our complex U.S. healthcare system, and they offer you tips and insights in order for you to travel on your own journey. I'm Dr. Nicole Deffenbaum, a clinical communications specialist, and I'm joined here by Dr. Emily Kripe. She's a professor of health communication at Kutztown University, and she's going to be talking about the wisdom of surgery. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. For our listeners, you can tell that we are um, at a public place, so you will hear some uh, coffee grinding in the background and um, some other noises, but we thought we'd give it a different change of scenery here. So I'm um, glad that you're able to join us. So you were 13. You had a teddy bear. I don't think anybody judges you for the bear, <laughs> <laughs> but you said it was a mistake. Uh, uh, so what, what happened? So, um, you know, there are different ways of them starting the anesthesia have different side effects and um, and one thing I didn't know when I made that choice was that um, by starting the anesthesia that way through the mask instead of through um, an IV, um, I had a lot of nausea afterwards. And the surgery that they did, um, it involved, you know, it involved it was cutting the back of my, my head, cutting neck muscles. And so I remember when I woke up from surgery, um, I, I had to throw up and I couldn't turn my head. My neck muscles were not responding at all. And so, so I had a pretty miserable experience when I came out of anesthesia because, um, in, probably in part because of, of what I had chosen there. So I learned from that experience. Yeah. So, yeah, because we, we learn through having experienced them, right? Sure. And, I mean, that was 25 years ago. That probably, they probably give better anti-nausea meds now and things like that. But, yeah, uh, yeah. seemed like the easier way out at the time. So tell us, um, so tell the listeners how many surgeries have you had now? Um, I've had, I, 
13 surgeries at this point in my life. I'm 38, so. So a few. A few. Um, so you have been asked to be on this podcast because there are many of us who have either had a surgery here or there, mm -hmm. um, or who haven't had surgery or who are caring for someone. So it's an opportunity to offer some insights. And your surgeries aren't the same, right? Mm -hmm. So you've had different surgeries for different sure. conditions? Yes, yeah. I mean, everything ranging from what I would consider to be pretty standard surgeries that a lot of people have, like tonsillectomies, and um, I had my appendix out, um, to, and, and C-sections, which are pretty standard now, I think. It's about a third of all deliveries in the U.S. are C-sections, um, to having brain surgery and um, and things like that. So, wow, yeah. so you've really gone through the gamut. So Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and some some planned and some um, after trauma, because I did have, um, I broke my hip in a car accident, and so had um, surgical repair immediately after for that, um, and then some follow-up surgeries later with that as well. So, yeah. So I thought we'd start, since this is called Health Stories, we'd start with um, some stories from, from your um, past experiences. And sure. Tell us um, what one stands out in your mind. I, ooh, that's a tough choice. Um, I mean, I suppose, now that I'm thinking of it, that the brain surgery sounds like the biggest one, um, but but probably maybe the scariest for my caregivers um, was probably after the car accident. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I had a period there in basically junior high, early high school where I had surgery pretty much every year for different things. I had my Chiari surgery um, right before I turned 14. And what is Chiari? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I had an Arnold Chiari malformation. It's C-H-I-A-R-I. Um, it's a congenital... I was born with it, um, neural tube defect, and um, and it's actually more common than they believed when I was diagnosed with it. Um, but um, anyway, it, it's what I had when I was diagnosed. It was it was thought to be quite rare. Um, essentially, your cerebellar tonsils in the back of your brain are enlarged and they're down too far, and it makes it hard for the cerebrospinal fluid to flow around your brain, um, and so. I, really my first major symptom from that was that I found that when I laughed really hard or I coughed, my neck hurt and I had to lay down. And I was, you know, 10 or 11 at that time, very active, doing dance, um, and it would happen at dance class, and I would just lay down for a minute or two, and it would go away. And when we mentioned it to the pediatrician, they said, oh, it's probably a muscle spasm. And I thought at the time, I mean, it had muscle spasms. It, that's a particular kind of pain that I was familiar with, and I thought it felt different than that. But I was 10 or 11, and I thought, well, what do I know? They're the doctor, right? So... Um, I kind of just accepted that and didn't really push it um, and it wasn't debilitating or anything and so I wasn't didn't feel like I needed to really you know do a lot there um, but then other weird symptoms started cropping up and accumulating um, but sort of the turning point for my mom I think was um, it was it was November and I came downstairs I lived in Michigan at the time um, I came downstairs one night before bed wearing pajamas that were shorts and I hadn't worn shorts in months in Michigan in November and my mom looked at my legs and noticed that my right leg had atrophied. My right leg was suddenly smaller than my left leg. 
and like I said she's a nurse so she notices these things and she got out her measuring tape and it was a measurable difference um, and I'd been like using an exercise bike and she was like are you pedaling with one leg and I said no I'm not doing anything and I was sort of in that preteen leave me alone mom kind of a phase um, but that really caused her to be pretty alarmed and to push um, for further evaluation and so they finally just did an MRI and that was how I was diagnosed. So how did you find out that you had the surgery? When What, what was that news like? Um, I mean, we went and we saw this doctor. So when my mom, um, when they did the MRI, and um, it actually, they, it was two weeks before we actually got the diagnosis after the MRI. I don't know why they didn't call us in sooner. Um, my mom's still frustrated about that, I think. But um, I, they then, um, you know, my mom said, okay, sh my daughter has needs brain surgery and has a rare disorder we will take her anywhere that we need to to find the best person to do this surgery. My, we got an appointment, we rescheduled our spring break plans um, and went to Detroit and met with this doctor um, who was just phenomenal and who looked at my scans and did um, you know, your standard neuro evaluation, test reflexes, have you walk across the room, those kinds of things and said, okay, well, I will be seeing you on Monday for surgery then. And what day of the week was it? That was a Friday. Okay. So, so what was it like for you? You're 13 at this point? Mm -hmm. What was it like for your 13-year-old self to be told that you have to have surgery on Monday? You know, I think, I don't know if it was denial or if I just um, have been kind of easygoing, but I just kind of accepted that. Okay. I mean, I knew I had something that was wrong that was causing these symptoms, and so, all right, I have to have surgery on Monday. I just kind of rolled with it, um, but I really had no idea what to expect because was this your first one? I had had my tonsils out, oh, okay. but really, yeah, probably my first surgery that I really knew what was happening. I have no real memory of the surgery for my tonsils. I just remember the recovery afterwards for that. Um, everyone tells you you can eat as much ice cream as you want, but they don't tell you you don't want to swallow. So, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, yeah, so I, I, I don't remember being very anxious about it or I do remember, I know I asked my mom, our junior high school dance was like the following Friday and I asked if I would still be able to go to that. And, and my mom kind of laughed at me and was like, if you feel like it, you can go to that. But she knew there was no way I was actually going to feel up to that. Yeah. So. so can you tell us um, just you know briefly what you remember about the going into the surgery and some of the things that you remember coming out of that surgery? I, you know, one of the things that, that was significant for me at that time, um, I had really long hair. And as a 13-year-old girl, um, they were very careful when they um, shaved the surgical site that she, um, like basically, they, they had to do, you know, cut at the back of my head and neck. And so she sort of shaved up the middle oh. so that if I had my hair like in a French braid, you couldn't tell. You couldn't see where the hair had been shaved. And that was significant for me because it meant I wasn't obviously disfigured, you know, um, by the surgery for a little while. Yeah. Okay. So since that time, you've had appendectomies, you've had C-sections. So mm -hmm. I, I, I'm most curious to ask, um, in terms of surgeries that didn't go so well, okay. what would be the surgery that, in your mind, didn't go so well and why? Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, funnily enough, I would probably say my appendectomy was um, the... It, 
should have, you know, that's that's just a day surgery for most people. Um, I wasn't acutely ill, but I was having some symptoms. And so um, they were able to do it laparoscopically. So just a couple of small, tiny incisions. Um, when they did that surgery and when they um, and so they sort of inflate your abdomen with air so that they can have more space to move and see what they're doing when they do um, that surgery and um, and that often causes a lot of nausea afterwards and and again they've been messing with your organs so you're a little more sensitive to that sort of thing um, and and they gave me um, Zofran, which is sort of the standard anti-nausea, best anti-nausea drug on the market. And I threw up for four days after I had that surgery. Yeah, I couldn't keep anything down. It was miserable. And um, and actually, my dad was sort of my caregiver during that time because he was home from work um, and he was he was really wonderful with me. Um, but, um, but after four days, you know, my mom called the surgeon and said, look, this is not working. Is there anything else you can give her for nausea? And I said, well, I and I guess we can give her Phenergan, but it's not it's not as good of an anti-nausea drug as Zofran. And she said, let's just try it and see. And I took one dose, and within half an hour, I was hungry for the first time in four days and stopped throwing up. And so, I mean, I think one thing that's sort of important to remember is that patients are not standard. Different people respond differently to different drugs. And, um, you know, for me, Phenergan was a better drug um, to help me with my nausea and coping with those side effects. I can only imagine how much you've learned over the years about, you know, like you said, so friends not good. Yeah. Like what works and what doesn't work. And we're Mm going to get to that in just a minute. Sure. Um, And Zofran works for lots of people, right? right? right, And it's been fine after my C-sections, but it just didn't in that case. Yeah. But learning to to ask the questions if it continues. And we're going to get to the insights in a minute. Sure. Um, The one thing I want to ask before we get to the um, insight educational section are your C-sections. So knowing that there used to like about a third of um, births are now through Mm C-section, what are, um, and we're going to get to the insights in a minute, but tell me about what it's been like. How many have you had? I've had two, and I'll have a third hopefully in May. Okay. So, yeah. have got a third one coming up. Yeah. Um, What has that been like? Um, And and I'm thinking back to the first. Mm -hmm. Did you assume that it was going to be like a vaginal delivery and it ended up being an emergency or? So back when I had my Chiari malformation surgery, I remember um, the, the neurosurgeon who did that surgery said, oh, and when you're older, if you have children, you'll have to have a C-section. And I was in, I was like, okay, whatever, this is, wasn't even on my radar at 13. Um, but then when I got pregnant 20 years later, I said, hey, um, my doctor said this, and I mean, it was 20 years ago, maybe things have changed in the last 20 years, but you know, is this something I need to do? And so I got another another MRI done and went and saw a neurosurgeon um, here who assessed me and then um, said, oh yeah, no, have a C-section. Very unequivocal about that. But one of the interesting things with C-sections is um, the general consensus seems to be that the rate of C-sections in the U.S. is too high, um, that we don't need to be doing as many C-sections as we are. And um, and there's a lot of different opinions on why that might be. Um, C-sections are generally thought to be um, safer for the baby, but more dangerous for the mother. 
Um, and, um, and so I think some of it's regional too, that there are regional differences in those kinds of things. But um, I remember a week after I saw the neurosurgeon and she told me that, which was kind of, okay, I've got this settled. I don't have to think about this anymore at least. Um, I had my anatomy scan for, um, for the baby, which is, you know, get a really good um, ultrasound done and see all the different parts and find out the baby's sex if you want to and that sort of thing. And um, the doctor we saw at that scan, who I'd never seen before for anything, um, said, oh, how was your appointment with the neurosurgeon? And I said, oh, it was good. She said, I have to have a C-section. And he got kind of defensive at that point and said, well, medically, there's no reason you need to have a C-section with this. And, and I was like, you know, the expert on my brain said I did. So I'm going to go with that. You got caught between two specialists, basically, yeah. disagreeing with the diagnosis. And he seemed very, it, it felt like he was more concerned about himself or them in their, how they looked having a higher C-section rate, essentially. Well, and, the baby, and the babies, too, right? Yeah. So, so the neurosurgeon's thinking about you and your brain. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's possible that they were thinking about you and the baby and, you know. Although, yeah. I mean, the C-section is actually technically safer for the oh, baby. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 Also, yeah. I think it was more about the numbers. I think it was, yeah, it was very like, well, we'll have to, that's not in your chart, and we'll have to get them to add that, and, you know, he was, yeah, he was not my favorite. I haven't seen him since then. But that but, didn't change your mind, it sounds like. No, because I really felt like, well, you don't know my history and my particular case with this, but you have to be willing to advocate for yourself in those cases, and at this point, you know, I had a PhD and studied health communication and knew to say, like, this is what I'm this is what we're doing because yeah. this is what seems to be medically the best decision which is a perfect segue <laughs> yeah. to talking about things that you've learned so uh -huh. advocating for yourself if there is one theme that has gone through almost all of these podcasts I have heard over and over again it's advocating for yourself mm -hmm. um, and having been through 13 surgeries I'm sure, sure you've learned a thing or two yeah yeah so what are some other tips that you've learned along the way um, either specific to a condition or mm -hmm. just I, I guess I'm starting to think sort of generally questions we should be asking things yeah. we should be thinking about as we prep for surgery? I mean, I feel like, actually, um, I, I had what's maybe one of my more routine surgeries um, most recently, which was I had um, sinus surgery. Um, I'd been having chronic sinus infections. Um, I kind of, I think, thought it was normal to just always have some pain in your face if you tapped on it, and apparently that's not normal. Um, and so anyway, ultimately, after some a really bad chronic sinus infection, ended up getting um, sinus surgery done, um, which is a day surgery. You aren't admitted to the hospital over night usually um, and but I really didn't know what to expect with it and so I really had to do a fair amount of research to find out what qualitatively for me as a patient that surgery and recovery was going to be like um, and so because it's it's not as common of a surgery as something like a c-section um, and I'll come back to that in terms of lessons in a minute but um, I, I really had to do a lot of research because my mom had said, oh, that's a terrible surgery because maybe 10 years ago they had to put like packing in your sinuses and then remove it and it was gross and smelly and awful and now that's changed a lot. They have dissolvable packing that goes in and so um, it was actually, you know, I think my best surgical experience because I felt better immediately after the surgery and the recovery was really pretty easy and it just made such a measurable difference in my day-to-day -day life so quickly. And I mean, 
mean, I had that surgery the day before Thanksgiving and still cooked Thanksgiving dinner the next day. Um, So I really felt better right away, but I hadn't known what to expect because I'd heard different things. And so um, I found some friends who had had it more recently and were able to tell me more about the recovery and give me more tips on things like that. Um, And I mean, I think your healthcare team does their best to tell you what to expect, but I think they assume you know things that you don't because most people, they, they, they live with this on a day-to-day basis. This is There's a lot of assumed knowledge, I think, that they have um, that we as patients don't often have. And even as someone who had a lot of surgeries at that point, right. I didn't know what to expect from this particular surgery. And so I think if you can talk to people or if you can find narratives online um, where people have shared their stories, it gives you a much better idea of what to actually expect and how to prepare yourself. Well, what questions to ask, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. So Absolutely. To be able to say, oh, I read about this. Can you help me understand this? Or I've got some questions about, like you said, um, the type of anesthesia they gave you. Right. You know, is there any way to know? And I would assume the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that you've had 13 surgeries. So, you know. Right. Is there anything you don't know? But every surgery is different. For sure. I have to backtrack really quickly because mm-hmm. I'm thinking this and I'm wondering if the listeners are too. Is there ever that point where you say, no, I don't want the surgery? Because I'm very surgery resistant. Sure. And you have to make a really good case for me to have it. Mm-hmm. I've had some minor surgeries. Yeah. But, um, do you find yourself more um, open to having surgery as opposed to not? Or are you still pretty, you know, kind of resistant or... I think, you know, you know I, I try to evaluate the evidence and be cautious. Um, I mean, in the case of the sinus surgery, I had had like eight rounds of antibiotics and the sinus infection just kept coming back and and it felt like this is really the only line of treatment. I mean, you know, they did a CT scan and there was no drainage. It was totally occluded on the one side and so um, it was blocked, yes. Um, yes, easy to slip into that medical jargon. Um, and so, um, you know, based on that, I felt pretty comfortable that that was really the only thing that was going to make a difference and it made a bigger difference for me than I ever would have expected really because I'd had sinus infections chronically for years just never went as bad as the particular one that got me yeah. in that situation. So tell me about the C tell me about the C sections. You mentioned you're gonna come back. Yeah, so I mean I think with C sections in particular, like um I do think we need to be cautious and not just, hey, it sounds like an easier way to have a baby. Uh, um, But I also don't think most people approach it that way. I know for a lot of mothers, I'm in some online moms groups, um, you know, when someone finds out that they might need a C-section for some reason, um, they have a lot of anxiety about that. Um, and and because because I think it's hard for us to say we should do fewer C-sections without also stigmatizing them further. Um, and that's something I've written about a bit, that there's C-section stigma. I have a piece in um, health communication that talks about, um, it's a defining moment narrative piece that talks about some of the stigma associated with C-sections. And um, so, you know, a purely elective C-section, probably not a great idea, but when it's medically necessary, C-sections save lives. And they also, the recovery is different than it is for vaginal birth. And sometimes you hear that it's much more difficult. Um, and I think it can be. I think in cases where women end up having emergency C-sections, they've been in labor and pushing for hours, and they're worn out, and then it's, it's, a, it's a crash emergency situation, then they're sort of recovering from both kinds of birth at the same time. They're recovering from the surgery to have C-sections, and they're recovering from... A 
everything your body went through being in labor for so long. They're extra exhausted when they start that surgery. But if you find out, you know, medically for some reason, maybe you have a breech baby, for example, babies that are upside down and want to come out feet first, which doesn't go well usually, um, that, that really you don't need to be anxious about that. Um, that I think, I think in some ways my recoveries from C-sections and my experiences have been better than, easier than a lot of the recoveries from vaginal births I've known people to have. Um, I mean, it is major surgery and you do need to really watch yourself afterwards and be cautious so that you don't make your recovery more difficult by trying to do too much. But, um, you know, really, I think it's, it's not something you can find out more about what to expect by talking to people. But, um, you know, I think it's something that if, if you're prepared for that as a possibility, um, I think when you're when you're anxious going into it, it can make it worse, too. Right. So some, if you can just, um, you know, touch on a couple of highlights of what what can you expect? Mm -hmm. So what can you expect specifically for C-section? Yeah. And, and I also tried to do research before having my C-sections on this. Um, but still, there were some things that surprised me. Um, I mean, with my first son, um, my first child, I, you know, I knew I needed to have a C-section. I had it scheduled. They won't schedule it before you're 39 weeks pregnant, which is good um baby is babies do best once they're 39 weeks they're they're fully developed and they're they're ready um and so he, i was scheduled for when i was 39 weeks and two days pregnant with him and um the night the the, the night before i was scheduled for a tuesday on sunday night I started having contractions overnight and so when I woke up Monday morning or when my husband woke up Monday morning I said Sue I think I'm in labor <laughs> and he was like what, what do you mean what are you talking about and my contractions were 15 to 20 minutes apart very kind of irregular actually um, but definitely real and had been going on all night and so I called the call line at like 6 a.m. Um, and talked to the doctor on call who didn't know my case and my history and they said oh well your contractions aren't close enough together yet call back when they're like five minutes apart and I'm like I don't think you understand that I am not supposed to like this right, is exactly. I explained that I was having a c-section but they didn't seem to care about that so I just waited two hours till my doctor's office opens at 8 a.m. and I mean if, if it hadn't been two hours wait I might have pushed harder or just gone just gone to the hospital um, and and, and I mean, I think that's something too, when women are pregnant, you don't want to cry wolf, sort of, but you're always better off getting checked. When in doubt, don't worry about being the hysterical patient or being, you know, getting checked and it's nothing. You're always, they would always rather you get checked and have it be nothing than have it be a baby in distress or, you know, um, and I mean, we have a much higher maternal mortality rate in the U.S. than we should. Oh, that's yeah, a crisis right now. Um, and so that's, don't read too much about that if it's going to freak you out. But that's something too, you know, don't, don't make sure that people listen to you and make sure that you're careful. So when I called at 8 a.m., I went in and they checked me and they said, oh yeah, no, you're dilated to three or four. And oh, that looks like a baby's butt, not a baby's head. <laughs> so Elliot was breech as well. Um, and so 
it actually turned out there was absolutely no way I could have had him vaginally, regardless, because he was wedged up under my rib cage. Um, and C-sections are kind of funny because, um, so I ended up having my C-section a day earlier than I was planning, um, and um, had so to- an unscheduled, scheduled C-section. Yes, exactly. Um, and and I, I hated they kept calling it elective, and I was like, it's not elective. It's, I mean, yeah. but it makes it, yeah, because that made me feel like I was, you know, sort of that stereotype of people who are having C-sections because they don't want the physical side effects of a vaginal birth. So not the case at all here. But um, I, I think, you know, one of the things that really surprised me was I knew that you were awake for the C-section, which I had never had a surgery I was awake for before. Um, but they, they numb you. They give you a spinal anesthetic. Um, and I thought that that meant that you were numb. And it's not. You don't feel pain, but you feel pressure. And that's very odd. And so um, you can't see what's going on. They put a drape in between you and the surgeon. Um, but um, I knew also from experience and reading about things um, that C-sections can be very fast. If, they, if it's an emergent situation and they need that baby out, they can get that baby out in about a minute. It can be very fast. You know, most of your surgical time is them putting you back together, basically. Um, and, and so I was, I was ha having the C-section done, and, and it felt like it had been a really long time that I had been feeling this pressure and, you know, happening. And um, so I, I said, hey, um, is everything going okay down there? And the doctor said, don't talk to me right now. <laughs> and I was sorry, it's just my body. I I, I didn't mean to share a I know. I was, ex I was like, excuse me, like, and and my husband said later, well, when you asked that, like, somebody was like up on the table pushing to like, because they were trying to get the baby out, who was wedged under my rib cage, like he had a dent in the side of his head when he was born, um, and so. I mean, that really sort of emphasized to me, like, oh, yeah, no, this would have been a case where neither of us would have made it out if we had not had the C-section as an option. So, um, and, and the recovery, despite, you know, it having been in labor when I did the section, which wasn't super fun because I was having contractions up till then, um, the recovery still wasn't really bad at all. So, okay. I mean, you know, make, make sure you get up and walk afterwards as soon as you can and things like that, but, uh, yeah. So last two questions. Um, one is, what advice do you have for those of us who are going into surgery in terms of not just the physical, but sort of the mental prep? <coughs> and then the other is advice for the caregivers, for mm -hmm. those of us um, who ask somebody and know of someone, a loved one, to help us uh, after a surgery. Mm. So advice for us, sort of the mental piece. Okay. Um, I mean, I think... If you can find a way to not be very anxious about it, to going in, which I know is easier said than done. I think for me, the more I know, now that I'm an adult, when I was a kid, not knowing what to expect was probably better because I think it might have scared me a little bit. But as an adult now, um, you know, for me, I know that if I know what to expect, that helps me to be mentally prepared for it and and be less anxious. And so, um, so I think that that helps a lot finding that information out, which you know, again, talking to people so I can sort of visualize what might happen um, is good. There are even videos online of surgeries if people find that helpful. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, some, some people would rather not know, and that's fine too. Depends how squeamish you are. Um, and um, so I think that really helps. Um, something like meditation can help a lot too, I think, to sort of get you in that 
mind frame. And just making sure you can ask all the questions you need to ask. Um, and if you don't feel like your caregiver has time during an appointment or you have a question that comes up later, call. They have, they have usually nurses in their office who will answer your questions and if they don't know the answer, they'll go talk to the physician and get back with you. Yeah, the on-call becomes important and, and I would just add having mm -hmm. had over 10 colonoscopies, mm -hmm. so not surgeries, but there's a lot of prep involved. It's yeah. helpful to have that number because if you do, if you have a prep for your surgery yeah. and you have questions, you need to have somebody to be able to call in and ask. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, I had a relatively minor surgery. I broke my pinky finger, but it was a rotational fracture, so they had to do surgery to put it back together. And again, it was a day surgery. Um, and, and I was living in Arizona at the time. My parents weren't there to be my caregivers for me. Um, and my friend who was there to like, you know, be there while I was under surgery and take me home, um, I, I think didn't have a lot of experience in that caregiving role and, um, and was out of town after the next couple of days and um, so I noticed a couple of days you know then maybe a day after I still couldn't didn't have feeling in my pinky that it had surgery and that sort of freaked me out and I looked at all the written paperwork they give you coming home and it didn't say anything and so I was like did they mess up a nerve what happened um, and so I called and talked to the nurse on call who said oh no we did a nerve block I'm like why didn't you write that down they're like well we told you and I was still kind of affected by the drug when you told me this. I have no recollection whatsoever. It's all very fuzzy. And I didn't have that support person there to actually absorb that information for me. So um, that's that's something that made a big difference too. So looking back, what have you said to your caregivers in terms of advice? Because I've heard throughout the, the years, and especially in the podcast, people have um, individuals and loved ones who are watching over them post-surgery and mm -hmm. they have every good intention. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, sometimes your caregiver can can actually cause more stress. So, do right. you have conversations with your caregivers, and what are some things that you've you've said? Um, I mean, I think a little bit. I, I guess I am I'm from a very medical family. Um, my partner now is in medicine as well, and so to some extent, they know what to expect. But I think also sometimes when you have people who are in the medical field the things that to them are routine are not routine to you. My brother is a surgeon and said, oh, C-section's barely surgery. Well, from a surgical perspective, I know he, it seems to him like it's a very easy procedure, but for a person who's gone through it and, you know, stays in the hospital for three days recovering, it's, it's not minor. It's major abdominal surgery. So, um, you know, I think when you have a caregiver who has that medical background, maybe reminding them that the things that are normal to them are not normal to you can be helpful. Um, sort of have them, you know, be in your shoes a little bit is good. Um, but I think just having somebody there who can ask questions and write things down that you maybe can't absorb as much, um, that's really important. I mean, there are some really good websites out there, like Mayo Clinic has a lot of really good, like here are questions you should ask your doctor um, on their website, and that's a really good, reputable place to go for some information and questions and ideas, I think. And just, you know, I think, too, making sure that your caregiver knows that they should ask questions as well, and that even if the provider seems rushed, it's more important that you get your questions answered. So make sure that 
you write them down and bring them with you and have somebody else there who can ask questions and take in information too. Yeah, their, their role as a caregiver, ask questions about that. Mm-hmm. Well, we are at the end of our time, so thank you so much, uh, Emily, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. And if you have not liked us on Facebook, you should. We are on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Stories Health. And there's a blog, Nicole Defenbaugh, D-E-F-E-N-B-A-U-G-H dot com slash blog. So thank you for joining us once again. We will be back next week. This is Nicole Defenbaugh with Health Stories.